<clears throat> when the wind blows, I have an amphibian in my larynx. For those of you from Oklahoma, that's a frog in my throat. Just kidding. Um, uh, do you have a password, Harold? Three three six six. Okay. All right. As uh, as Harold was leading songs, as we were singing, and as he was talking, uh, my mind went to a whole bunch of different psalms. Uh, one of the ones where he talks about we don't have to worry. Uh, you know, God's in charge. I thought of Psalm forty six. Uh, where he says, uh, be still and know that I am God. And I hope to get to that psalm later on uh, this week. I want to look tonight at two psalms, uh, briefly at Psalm 8 and then uh, at Psalm 19. If you look at Psalm 8, which I haven't turned to yet, If you look at Psalm 8, you'll notice that David wrote this in the nighttime. Or at least he wrote it about the nighttime. Because he says uh, down in verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? the Son of Man, that you care for Him. Uh, when I consider your heavens, the moon and the stars which you establish, the work of your fingers, you know, when you think about that, uh, I like to read about the solar system. I like to read about space, uh, what's out there. Uh, I don't know if you have uh, seen the pictures from the Hubble Telescope. But uh, God created beauty even where our eyes can't see. He just, his creativity is so in enormous, so massive, that we can never grasp all of it. And uh, the, the Hubble telescope has showed us some things. We knew there were a couple of other galaxies because we could see them through other telescopes. But the Hubble telescope has showed us that there are more than 2 billion other galaxies bigger than our own. Our own galaxy has trillions of stars in it. So imagine, you know, <clears throat> the Milky Way. How many of you have seen the Milky Way at night, you know, like in the mountains where you can actually see it spread out? It looks, it looks like spilled milk. And the reason it's called galaxy is the word galaga comes from the Greek. It's the Greek word for milk. Um, it looks like a Milky Way. And... Uh, it's just amazing. I mean, there's some of the stars, if you're in the mountains, they hang so low it looks like you could take a big stick and reach up there and knock them down, but they're a little farther away than that. But think about two billion galaxies. God is an incredible artist. We see it in nature all the time. But when you consider two billion, uh, that's too big a number for our minds anyway. That's a thousand millions. It's just 
the universe is incredibly large. And when God created it, I see him like an artist sitting over a postage stamp and creating a postage stamp, which is the universe. He is so much greater than the universe that it's just to him a small work of art. And uh, one of the more amazing things about it is that when uh, I remember uh, Alfred Hitchcock he used to make movies. And uh, whenever he made a movie, he was always a bit part in the movie. And one, I remember one of the movies, he was leading a, walking a bunch of dogs through a hotel lobby. Uh, you know, he just kind of put himself in the movie, uh, all of his movies. And you watch and you'll see Alfred Hitchcock show up in those movies. Well, when God created the universe, he, not just a bit part, he sent his son to be the central character in the whole thing of history. And when you stop think about it, even our calendar is based on his appearance. You know, everything that God has done, he's done to bring glory to himself and to make friends with us. You know, the, all he's done is to try to get us to walk with him. Now, Micah the prophet it says that uh, God made us to do justice. That means treat each other right. And to love mercy, which is a, the word mercy is really not a good translation. The word really means to love the covenant relationship that we have with God. So to treat people right and to have this relationship with God and to walk humbly with our God. And then Jesus says the same thing in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. A yoke, if you remember, has a place for two oxen. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you'll find rest for your souls. You know, he's telling us that he'll do most of the work if we walk with him. And that's all he wants. And David, there are places in the Psalms where David says, I think of you in the watches of the night. You know, which is a beautiful image. The, the Jews had four watches in the night. The first watch was from six to nine. And the second watch, nine to twelve. And, you know, so on. Four watches. And here's David uh, in the watches of the night thinking about God. Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night and not go back to sleep? There can be several reasons for that. But when you do, think about God. Have you read recently the the fourth and fifth chapters of the book of Revelation, that's my worship chapter. That's what I think of when I think of God, the, the throne room of God with these giant beasts surrounding the throne and 24 elders lined up with golden crowns and multitudes of people that no one could ever count, John says, beyond number, standing. And when, when the Lamb appears... Standing in the midst of the throne, all the people fall down on their faces and worship the one who stands on the throne. He is a lamb who has been slain standing. He died, but he's alive again. And we sang the song, Alive, Alive, Alive. We need to be reminded of that. When you wake up in the middle of the night, think of that. 
praise God in the middle of the night. Tell him what David said. I think of you in the watches of the night. Great poetry. And here he is talking about the sun and the moon and the stars. When you think about those things. Yeah, I love what Genesis Genesis talks about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth, you know, he focuses now on the earth. Formlessness and emptiness and darkness over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God brooding over the waters. And God speaks and everything comes into being. He speaks ten times like the Ten Commandments. And the universe comes into being. And then he says he created the big light and the little light. And he didn't call them sun and moon because the nations all around Israel worship the sun and moon by their names. So he just calls them a big light and a little light. And then at the end of the whole thing, he says, oh, and the stars also. And when you think about the stars, there's one star out there. You know, I studied uh, the star Betelgeuse. I don't know if you've read about it. Not Betelgeuse the movie, but Betelgeuse the star. This thing is enormous. But then I realized later on that they have discovered another star that's even bigger than Betelgeuse. It's called Antares. If you were to put Antares where our sun is, it's so big it would engulf the orbits of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, and another hundred million miles in all directions in space. Just the, going through the center of that star, it would take light more than an hour to go from one side to the other. Light travels 186,272 miles a second. Imagine a star so big. And David says, the work of your fingers. You know, to God, the creation is just fun. And I think he does it just for his relaxation. And when you look at Psalm 8 and see, man, what is man? When you compare us, I have a sermon on Psalm 8 called The Misery and the Grandeur of Man. Man is miserable. We're nothing. You compare us to the size of the universe, we're nothing. We're on a speck in space, traveling through space at, uh, at 19.2 miles a second around the sun, spinning on its axis. We're not even aware of this. We just sit in a room and we don't think about all that's going on around us and how vast and awesome it is and the fact that it, at 19.2 miles a second, it takes a whole year to make the trip around the sun. That's how we get our year. You know, God does this with the work of his fingers. And no wonder David said, what is man? You know, we think our problems are so important. But our problems are not important. They may be important to us. They may be important to God. But in the, in the whole universe of things, our problems are nothing. What is man that you're mindful of him? Why does God even think about us? I read the story of Noah recently. and There's a place in there after Noah and his family had been on the ark for six months that the, the Scripture says, God remembered Noah. You know, it's like 
Oh, yeah. No, no, it's not like that at all. I tell my students, I ask them, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? Yeah, he, he, he is a past master of all knowledge. He doesn't have to wait for things to happen to see how it turns out. You know, we call the, the terms like predestination and, and foreknowledge and stuff like that. We do that for our little minds, but for God, it's past mastery. He has total knowledge of all things. He's Alpha and Omega. He doesn't move through time the way we do. And so, what is man? Boy, that's a great question. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? That you visit him? That you take care of his needs? What is man? Think about that. Man is so important to God that he sent the best he had to reclaim us. Don't you think when he made Adam and Eve, he knew exactly what was going to happen? He made Adam, and Adam named all the animals. And nothing was found fit for Adam. So God hypnotized him. That's the Greek word that's used there in that story put him to sleep, and God made out of his side a woman. And I, I think the age of innocence, after she woke up and he woke up, he sees her, first poetry in the Bible, he sees Eve and he says, now this this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This will be called Isha, woman. For this was taken out of Ish. Three times he says this. He'd been looking for this. You think she had hairy armpits? Yeah, I'm just asking. <laughs> I have no idea. But I don't think it would have mattered a bit to him. <laughs> you know... Uh, she, she is what he needed. And then the age of innocence people refer to, I think, lasted about five minutes. They're on their way to the tree. And Adam's telling her, you know, God said, don't touch, don't eat from this tree. And then when, she, when the serpent starts talking, he doesn't talk to Adam. He talks to Eve. And Adam abdicates his position of authority. And so here, here this is, the Son of Man. Don't you think that God knew that Adam and Eve were both going to eat from that tree? Tree of knowledge, good and evil. Satan had made him a promise. If you eat of this, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here's a shortcut. Guess what? Satan lied in half of that. You'll be like God? No. You'll know good and evil? Yeah. And everything changed. And God, from that point on, has done everything he has done to try to get people to come back to him. Wayward humans, sinful people, to come back to him. And so here David says, What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man, which is another way to say earthbound man, ground, you know, the man made out of the dust. What is man 
that you care for him? How much does he care? He stretched out his hands and died. That's how much he cares. So Psalm 8, written at night, or at least written about the night. But then Psalm 19 is different. Psalm 19 is written in the daytime. Take a look at Psalm 19 if you have your Bibles. This is one of those great ones that good to memorize. It's a psalm of David, it says, a director for the director of music adapted for temple worship. And the thing that I see in this psalm is that God has three witnesses that tell us about God. The first witness is nature, what we've been talking about here. The vast array of the stars and the moon and the sun and all that's, all that's involved with that. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies show His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night displays knowledge. There is no speech, and there are no words. But their line goes out through all the earth. Have you seen a picture of the earth from outer space? When they show pictures of the earth, watch, and you'll see the line of the heavens and the earth that he's talking about. There's a line that goes right down the middle of the planet. On one side is light, on the other side is dark. And the Hebrew text here actually says their line goes out through all the earth. The line of the heavens and the earth, nothing, nothing is uncovered by that. I mean, that line passes over everything. The line between morning and evening. The line between day and night. And so David recognizes that. And he says, There is no speech. See, this this bothers me. Day 3... Uh, in, in verse 2 and in verse 3 it says day to day pours forth speech night to night de- displays knowledge yet there is no speech or language what does that mean you know it means that God there's evidence for God in nature all the time and it's not with actual words But it's there. And the next verse, verse 4 says, Their voice goes out into all the earth. Everybody sees it. Paul uses this in Romans and says, There is no place on earth where God does not have a witness because the heavens and the earth witness. You look at it and the order of creation is so obvious. There has to be someone who made this. A watchmaker. Imagine taking all the pieces of a Swiss watch and uh, putting a plug in your bathtub and putting all the pieces of the Swiss watch in your bathtub and shaking it and waiting until they come together. You know, I don't think they'll ever come together. There's no way that's going to happen. And the universe is far more complex than a Swiss watch. 
tremendous detail God paid attention to. You know, not only is he beyond the farthest star, but he's down inside the core of the atom, holding the universe together, the Scripture says, by the word of his power. And so here is David writing about the, the order in the universe, talking about day and night and the, the, the message that it gives, that there is someone behind this. There's someone who created this. And then he says, their words go to the end of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. So now he's writing about daytime, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. You know, he's like a, a, a groom coming out the morning after his first night with his bride, and he's just excited, and he comes out, like a warrior, and he runs his course. And it says he rises at one end of the heavens, makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is hid from its heat. So here's the order of the universe. Have you studied any about what's called the anthropic principle? I had to write a, a paper about that one time. Uh, the anthropic principle, anthropos, is the Greek word for man. And so it, it's asking the question, how can we exist on this planet? If our sun, 93 million miles away, was a white star, we would be a floating cinder. But our sun happens to be a yellow star. A yellow star clear out at the edge of the Milky Way. If we were in the center of the Milky Way, the gravitational forces would crush us. In other words, everything that's set up in the universe that God has done is for our benefit to make it so we can live. And I know about SETI. I know that there is a search for uh, intelligence out beyond the stars. And they set these big things up. And I remember Carl Sagan talking about uh, the possibility of billions of other planets producing billions of other races. They haven't found a single one. Isn't that strange? Now, there may be some out there. I personally think there probably are, since God is infinitely creative. Uh, there may be a, a, a culture somewhere on a planet that has not sinned. C.S. Lewis writes about that in uh, his Space Trilogy. Uh, it's certainly worth reading. Uh, out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength, those three books are all about a planet where Adam and Eve didn't sin. They did what was right. And it shows the results of that. And then there may be planets somewhere where there are people who have pure science who can do things that we don't understand. I remember the UFO craze back in the 60s. And I don't want to get into what my wife and I saw. Someday, if you ask me about it, I'll tell you. But it was definitely an unidentifiable flying object. And I, I told my brother, who, was, uh, who worked for the space program, uh, he worked for Aerospace Corporation, and uh, he's the guy that put up all the satellites we have. When I was in his office, I saw all these pictures of satellites. I said, how many of these did you put up? He said, all of them. He said, every satellite America's put up had to go through my office. 
I was impressed. He is now retired, 82 years old, uh, in incredible shape, has walked all the, you know, hiking trails of Europe and the United States, and I don't know if he'll ever die, but uh, he's an amazing, amazing guy, but he's a guy that would understand all this. He would understand these things. And he would see how incredible it is that we have the mind, the ability, not all of us, but I mean some of us have the ability to put people in space, to send out, what's that one that went clear out beyond Pluto and sent back pictures of Pluto? It starts with V. Maybe you remember what it is. Voyager, that's it. Uh, There was a Star Trek thing on that too. Uh, but imagine the universe here is in such order that we can mathematically organize and send somebody up to the moon. You think of the complexities of that. The moon and the earth are revolving around each other. They're moving around the sun at 19.2 miles a second, and the earth's gravitational force drags the moon along. And the moon changes the tides on earth, and everything's ordered. You know, God said the little lights to rule over the night, and the big lights to rule over the day. God set it up that way. Amazing. The rocks they brought back from the moon look like a reflector on your, on your bicycle, on the back of your car. They're little bubbly rocks. Uh, they also designed these huge pods for the lunar landing module. You remember that? These great big feet that it was supposed to land on. The reason they made them so big is that the theory of evolution told them that there were 30 feet of dust on the moon. When they got there, it was about that deep. They didn't need those great big feet on that thing. Uh, but they thought the, earth, the moon was millions and millions of years old, or billions or whatever. But the chances are it's not that old. Otherwise, you know, it doesn't cause them to change their theories. They still believe in evolution. But people are foolish. The first evidence for the existence of God is nature. The second is the law, the written word. Look what he says. The law of the Lord. And by the way, there are six terms here in a row about the word of God. First one is Torah, the word law. <clears throat> the law of Yahweh is perfect. Now, did you notice at the beginning he didn't use the name Yahweh in verse 1? He says, The heavens declare the glory of El. The Hebrew word El means a mighty one. See, you can't know the, the, the God of the Bible by nature. You can know there's a God out there. There's a mighty one there who organized all this. But you can't know it's Yahweh. But now you come to this verse and it says, The law of Yahweh is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of Yahweh are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of Yahweh are radiant giving light to the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is pure, enduring forever. 
the ordinances of Yahweh are sure and altogether righteous. Let's stop there. Six terms. And the name Yahweh mentioned in there six times. See, even the written word is not complete. Six is a number of incomplete. Seven is a complete number. You know, man was created on the sixth day. Man and sin is what the number six signifies. You've heard of 666 in Revelation. Man and sin. But now we've got the Word of God being incomplete. There's something yet to come. This was written by David about a thousand years B.C. There's something yet to come. The Word has to be fulfilled yet. There has to be a seventh element added, and that seventh element is Jesus. The written Word is great, but the living Word is far greater. And you can come to know the living Word through the written Word. The written Word alone is not enough. Jesus says in John 5:39, "You study the scriptures because in them you think you have life, and they bear witness to me, and you won't come to me that you may have life. You can't get life here in the in the written word, but you get life by going to the master, the author of the written word. Come to Jesus to be saved. Not not the written word. You know, I love the Bible. I love the written word, but it wasn't nailed up on Calvary for me. The Bible doesn't love me. Jesus loves me. And this I know because the Bible tells me so. Look at all those parts of the word. We could, in my Hebrew classes, we spend time in each one of these words. The word Torah. The word Torah comes from a Hebrew word that means to throw a spear. It ends up meaning whatever God points out. That's the Torah, His instruction, His law. The next word, statute, means something carved in stone, like the Ten Commandments were written all the way through the tablets, according to the rabbis. And the angels delivered those words to Moses, and God put them on there Himself. Let me tell you, this book is an incredible book. It has things hidden in it that show that God is the author. Proverbs, Solomon wrote, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing. It's the glory of kings to search out a thing. The Scripture calls us kings. The book of Revelation says we are priests and kings. And so our job is to search out what God's hidden here. If I had time, I'd tell you. There's a place in the Scripture where there's a little code written. In uh, Isaiah 53, 8, 9, and 10, where it talks about he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Therefore, God will highly exalt him. You read the passage, it's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and there's a code in that Hebrew text. 
And the code was discovered by some rabbis years ago, and then they didn't want to deal with it, but I ran into a rabbi who had studied to be a rabbi and became a believer in Jesus. And he knew about it. They ended up writing a book this thick entitled Yeshua, Come and See, Jesus, Come and See. And they asked me to do the proofreading for the Hebrew in the book, and I did. Uh, Truman Blocker and Joel Young are the two guys that wrote that book. And they found this little code in there, and the code says, Yeshua Shemi in Hebrew, Jesus is my name. And there are many, many, many other places like that where there are hidden codes I could show you one in Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis, first chapter of Exodus, first chapter of Leviticus, first chapter of Numbers, first chapter of Deuteronomy that just tells me that this is God's work. This is His writing. He is the source behind this. You'd have to have a computer to set up to figure out how to say these things. You know that Passover comes 50 days, I mean, 50 days before Pentecost, right? Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on the church on the 50th day. 50 is the number for the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this years ago, and when I talked about the book of Revelation here, we went through the numbers. Number 5 is the number of grace. And the number 10 is the number of sufficiency. So the Holy Spirit, 50, is a multiple of 5 times 10, sufficient grace. And the Holy Spirit is identified in the first chapter of each of those books of the Pentateuch. Every 50th letter, I can show you where it starts in the Hebrew, and you can count the letters. It spells out Torah, every 50th letter. You go to Exodus, you have the same thing, Torah, every 50th letter. God is putting his fingerprint here to show us that this is really his. It makes wise the simple. You know, there's some things in the Bible no one's discovered, I'm sure. The more I study it, the more I realize, the the littler I know. You know, if you have that much knowledge, all the area outside of that, you don't know. I've got students that have that much knowledge. And they don't know that they don't know. I'm telling you, this year... I've taught for 45 years at Dallas Christian College, and I'm telling you, I've got the dumbest students I've ever... I I hate to say that. I say it only because it's true. They have never read a book. All they're reading is these little handheld screens. And it's mostly, you know, BS. Uh, Well, that's Barbara Streisand. (laughs) But, you know, (laughs) very small... Um, you know, and, and they're reading and they're writing. They don't even capitalize their eyes. You know, it's like, what, what is this? What's this thing you just turned into me? You know, go do it again and do it right. And I love them and I, I want to help them. But I would say half of my class is beyond that. I don't, don't know how it's going to work out. I, all the other professors are seeing the same thing. So it's a sad situation. They don't know the Bible. They haven't been reading it. But see, I've been in churches where people have not read the Bible, where people don't spend time in the Word. We've got to spend time in the Word. As it says here, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. 
people who are naive, people who are open but ignorant, can be made wise by studying the Word. All the early fathers of this country knew this. I read Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Benjamin Franklin based his whole life on the Bible. You know, people are always saying he was a deist. Well, he may have had a weird theology. I don't know. But everything he did is based on the Bible. Thomas Jefferson. People condemn him for for, uh, rewriting the Bible or taking parts out of the Bible. But by the end of his life, all around his house, he had hand-copied the entire New Testament and put it up on different places in the house so he could memorize the entire New Testament. You know, these guys were John Adams and his son John Quincy Adams, brilliant scholars in the Word. Every one of them was either a lawyer or a minister or both. The University of Virginia, the first university set up in this country, Thomas Jefferson was president, and it was for creating ministers and lawyers. And all the Ivy League schools were originally here for ministers, ministerial training schools. And now the the head of the theology department at Harvard writes for Playboy magazine. We have fallen incredibly far in a very short time. Things are happening too fast. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving a joy to the heart. You want joy? You want happiness? Man, oh man, study the Scripture. Don't just, I mean, read it is great, but study it. Think about it. Mull it over. Talk to your friends about it. Talk to your family about it. Nothing better. My wife and I discuss it. My son and I, every time we get together, spend time discussing. My daughter and I and her husband, we got three ministers in our family. And it's, it's a great experience to get with those guys and just talk about the Word. It's so exciting. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eye. You want to be enlightened? If you're enlightened, you will be filled with joy. The fear of Yahweh is pure. Fear of the Lord. You know, I I first became a Christian for fire insurance. You know, I was terrified of God. I thought I was going to go to hell. And that's why I became a Christian. It took me probably about 18 years after becoming a Christian at age 20 to finally realize that God really had forgiven me. And the universe lurched when that happened. Everything changed. It freed me. The fear of Yahweh is pure, enduring forever. You know, fear of the Lord is to turn away from evil. Fear of the Lord is to stop sinning. There is no stronger message that the church has than grace for the world and stop sinning for those of us in in the church. That's what we're supposed to do for Christians. Overcome sin. The ordinances of the Lord are pure, altogether righteous. You take them all together and they are perfect. They are righteous. They're more precious than gold, than pure gold. Sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. Remember when I was a little kid, I was sitting at the table in the my my parents grew up in Missouri, and there was a farm in northwest Missouri where my grandfather raised bees. He had 28 uh, hives. And uh, 
my grandfather never wore any protective clothing. The bees would land on him, but they would not sting him. The day he died, all, the, all those hives swarmed. It wasn't the time for swarming, but it was almost like they knew that he was gone. Now, I don't know what happened to all those hives. I hope somebody good got them, but there's nothing like bringing in raw honey in the honeycomb. You know, you chew the honeycomb and it cleans your teeth. Uh, it's a, a waxy substance. It's amazing, and it never you can never chew it away. It just keeps chewing and chewing and chewing. But I was sitting at the table as a little kid, and my mom came in and said, What are you doing? I said, I'm just eating honey. And she went and got a camera and came back and took a picture. It was all over the table and me, and I got some of it in me. But there, the, the Word of God is more precious than gold. You know, I always think about winning the lottery. What would happen if you won? What was this last Powerball thing, over $900 million? You can't keep it. That's too much. You can't put it in the bank. There's no insurance that would cover it. You just have to give it away. I think it would be so much fun to send money to Bible colleges and missionaries and just give them what they need. And most people that win those things end up going broke. That's just crazy. These things are more precious than gold. If you have the Scripture in you, you know, Harold mentioned earlier, the way we conquer Satan is by the Word of God. And he mentioned... Uh, Matthew 4, where Jesus faces the devil and three temptations and quotes the Scripture. The Word of God is, this is not the sword of the Spirit, folks. The sword of the Spirit is the spoken Word. That's why it's important to memorize the Scripture. My students hate it that I make them memorize Scripture. But they end up memorizing it. And they get it so it's like second nature to them. And that's the way it needs to be. It's going to be an incredible experience for us if we will memorize the Word, and then whenever Satan attacks us, I used to be tempted to go get drunk. You know, the Bible says drunkenness is the opposite and, and a parallel idea to being filled with the Spirit. Two times. Acts chapter 2. Ah, these guys have been drinking. Peter said, no. It's too early in the morning for that. You know, he didn't say, no, we don't drink. You know, that's, that's a Baptist would say that, but a, a, a Jew would never say that because all of them drink wine except for the Rechabites and the Nazarites, but all Jews drink wine. In fact, the Passover meal has four cups of wine. I call that a Jewish happy meal, you know. Uh, I got to do a Passover just a few weeks ago, and I'm going to be doing another one at the family camp in the Kaimishis. Uh, I think it's the end of July, somewhere back there, but I'm looking forward to that. It's, the Passover is an incredible teaching, an amazing thing, uh, and we can learn a lot from it. But the words of the Lord, if you memorize them, they will flow like honey on your tongue. They will be so sweet to you. But when you try to do them, you know, Ezekiel ate the Word of God and his stomach became sour. You know, the Word is sweet in your mouth, but it's so hard to do. 
It's so hard to live it. But we need to memorize it. So the second part, the second witness to God is the Word. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So we are warned as servants of God. We are warned by the Bible, by the written Word. So the third witness is our human conscience. Three witnesses. Nature, the Word of God, and our human conscience all bear witness that God is God. Look what he says. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern errors? See, that's the first kind of sin. Errors, mistakes we make. Forgive my hidden faults. There's the second kind. These are sins that we have, the faults that we have we don't even know about. If you're married, your, your spouse will probably tell you uh, what yours is, but otherwise you, you won't know. But God knows, and God is looking at us and knows us so completely so he can forgive all even of our hidden faults. And then he says, keep your servant back from willful sins. See, this is the real dangerous one. Jerry Bridges, in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, said when a Christian sins, he chooses to do so. You choose to sin? You know that's willful sin. You know it's wrong, but you do it anyway. In the Old Testament, there is no sacrifice for willful sin. That's why David says, keep your servant back from willful sin. Help me not to sin intentionally, on purpose, against you. Why? Why is that so deadly? Look at the next line. Then I will be blameless, innocent of the great transgression. If you continue to do willful sin you will fall away because your sin will become more important to you than God is. That's the danger in willful sin. Great transgression, that word is apostasy, falling away from God. I'm going to knock that thing off again. So there's four kinds of sins mentioned here. Can you pick them out? See, just knowing these sins about ourselves point to the fact that there's someone out there who's righteous. In John 16, Jesus says the Holy Spirit's job is to teach the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin because they don't believe in me. Righteousness because I go away to the Father and you see me no more. And judgment, because the world is already judged. Satan is already judged. So here we have it. The Holy Spirit's job is to teach everybody that they're a sinner, that righteousness is available in Jesus, and that there is a judgment coming. Everybody in the world knows that. Isn't that amazing? Most people don't want to talk about that. The judgment, that's the last thing I want to talk about. But the Christian, I'm longing for the judgment. 
I have a little bit of fear in there mixed with that, but I'm longing for God to separate the sheep from the goats and give us what's been prepared for us before the foundation of the world. If anybody can make me a home, God is the one who can make us a home that we will absolutely love. And then the final prayer, and here's David where it comes down to the personal relationship with God. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. See, if we could just get our words under control and our thoughts under control. May these be pleasing in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. On this rock, I'll build my church, he says. We need to pray this prayer. And we also need to pray for what Jesus asked for, the only prayer request he ever asked for, that we should pray for more workers to go out into the field and take the gospel around the world. Churches in America are slowly diminishing. 1% to 2% per year. But churches around the world are exploding with growth. Uh, One of my past students, Ajay Lal, in India, uh, he completed a doctorate degree. He went back to India, and now he has literally hundreds of churches with hundreds of thousands of members going through persecution right now in India. He prays this prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. It's about the relationship we have with God. Let's let the Psalms really speak to us. And let's study them day and night. What was it Psalm 1 said? He meditates on God's Word day and night. That doesn't leave out a lot of time, does it? Let's pray together. We're grateful, Father. Grateful for your word. Grateful for those witnesses to you. And for our conscience, Father, that tells us that we're sinners, that we need your forgiveness, and that we have it according to your word. We praise you and thank you for Jesus who gave his life a ransom for many, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, that you were in Christ, reconciling the world to yourself and not counting their trespasses against them. And I pray, Father, that this church will deliver grace to the world around us that will proclaim the forgiveness of sins that has already happened at Calvary. I pray, Father, that many more will accept the forgiveness. Thank you for each person that's here tonight. I pray that you will bless, that you'll work in their hearts, that your word will penetrate them, and change them to be more like your son Jesus, in whose name 
I pray.